Good morning, beloved. I'd like to do something a little different than normal at the start of our time in God's word. Um, I would like for you to pray. And so if you will, just bow your head, um, close your eyes, and I'd like for you to pray first that God would speak. It can be as simple as just saying, God, would you speak? And then I want you to pray and make that very personal. God, would you give me ears to hear you speak? And then something even more radical. Ask God to soften your heart to obey what he says. Amen. Well, an October morning in 2006 that seemed quiet and a bit chilly in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, a lot of people's world was turned upside down when uh, Charles Roberts entered into an Amish community schoolhouse and shot 10 young girls. He ultimately took his own life as the police were there. Um, little boys were sent out of the room because he didn't want to kill any little boys. He specifically wanted to kill some young girls. And as they gathered around an outhouse praying for what was happening inside, hearing gunshot after gunshot, until ultimately 10 girls are shot and he has killed himself. This is an Amish community that strives to separate themselves out from the rest of the world and wants none of the spotlight. And yet suddenly on this morning in October, the gaze of the world is directed at this community, at this tragedy. What would drive a man to do this? Why would he do this? Why this community? What was the reasoning behind all of this? And now this community that does not want any of the limelight is suddenly in the spotlight that, what are you going to do? And we look at that day, and you can see that by that afternoon, one of the grandfathers of a victim had publicly expressed forgiveness toward this man who killed. And the world watched as the Amish community, absolutely in grief and mourning, actually went to the family of this killer to comfort the family of the killer. And in the days that follow, we hear story after story of them not casting blame, not attacking, not retaliating in any way, but instead offering grace and loving forgiveness. You think, what? And we learn that um, Roberts was actually intentionally doing this. He wanted to kill some young girls because nine years prior to this, his baby daughter had passed away the day of her birth. And so this was an act of vengeance on God that he would now take the lives of other young girls, namely Christian girls. And so as a man who in his hurt turns towards revenge, he seeks this out. And the community that he encountered responded to their own hurt and loss with grace and forgiveness. And you just have to wonder how could they do that? How could they do this? How in the world could that kind of love be possible? And that's the tension we must face in today's passage. So if you will, turn with me to Luke chapter six. As we continue um, in our sermon series, Certainty, um, to know that Jesus is truly who he said he is, and this faith really is, it's resolute. It is, it is something you can rely on 
Um, and, and so as we've looked at what it is to follow Jesus and this invitation of grace that you don't deserve to be part of my mission, you don't deserve to be around me, and yet I'm calling you into this. And now to be a follower of Jesus, we need to look at his teachings and say, if I'm gonna follow Jesus, I should obey his teachings. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus, is to be obedient to his teachings. And so when we've been going through, we started last week with these beatitudes and woes, and now we pick up in verse 27 of chapter six. So if you will read with me, Luke chapter six, verse 27 says, but I say to you who listen, are you listening? Love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. These are hard words. The law had already taught us to love our neighbor and that was hard enough. And now Jesus says, love your enemies and take action on that. Love them. Bless them when they curse you. Pray for them. Love your enemy. Take action on loving them. Bless those who curse you. How can I bless those who curse me? And this is intentionally on the heels of the pronouncement of these blessings, the beatitudes and the woes, that if I can recall the woes already given, that there is judgment coming. And it's out of my hands. It's not my place to be part of that. There is a day coming when everyone will give an account for what they have done. And the whole idea is like, look, you've already had yours. Be careful. You've already had yours. And so this idea of the contrast of like, there are those who are dependent on God and those who are independent. They think that they can rely on themselves and the things of this world. And Jesus is saying like, you're so blessed when you see that you just need me. And those of you who don't think you need me, man, you've already got what you want. Be careful. So if we can remember that, we can remember the tension of the already not yet, that our blessing is here and it is to come fully, then that is how we can bless those who curse us. Pray for those who mistreat you. What? (laughs) Why would I pray for those who mistreat me? Isn't that the ultimate act of love? If God is infinite, he is sovereign as scripture from start to finish paints him to be. There's nothing outside of his control. There's nothing he cannot do that he wants to do. For me to pray for my enemy is the highest act of love I can take part in because I am petitioning the limitless God to do something on behalf of someone else. So you want to change your heart towards your enemy? Start praying for them and watch how radically God will shift the way that you see them the way you relate to them. And see, this is the most loving thing you can do for someone is to pray for them because you are finite. You have limitations. God does not. So pray for those who mistreat you. And he goes on, verse 29. He says, if anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you. And from someone who takes your things, don't ask for them back. <laughs> It becomes like this very real lived experience. Like we know what it's like to be hurt. And so someone slaps you, and you gotta think about this. Slapping someone is not like I wanna kill you in this moment. It's no, I wanna inflict some pain. It's really more of an insult. When someone insults you, when someone hurts you in that way, what does Jesus call us to do? You turn the other cheek. You make yourself vulnerable to that attack again. You don't retaliate. When they take your coat, you say, well, you know what? It's a nice shirt too. Have this. Like, what? 
you make yourself increasingly more and more vulnerable. He says to give to everyone. And what are you saying? That it's everyone. Prejudice has no place in this. And when, you, when you're encountering people in need, do you find that your heart kind of is, is more prone to feeling compassion for some people based on their appearance or what you know of them than others? And yet Jesus here says, no, without prejudice, give to everyone. And why would we give to everyone, including those who take and can give nothing back? Because generosity is an obvious, tangible expression of love. And we're to love others. Love, by its very nature, involves letting go of one's rights. And so it is sacrificial. It hurts. And yet there's such a beauty to it that love is excluding revenge and persisting in doing good, even at the risk of exposure and repeated harm by making yourself vulnerable. Jesus has called us, his followers. Can you hear? Is anyone listening? Then love your enemy. And this is what it looks like. To make yourself vulnerable, to repeat an attack, to be hurt. You know the, the adage that's said so much that hurt people hurt people. And you think about life and you're like, that's very true. The people who have been hurt tend to be the people who want to hurt others. I have been there, you have been there. We know what it's like when we are feeling hurt, how easy it is to try to now lash out further. And it becomes this domino effect that someone's hurt, they hurt another person. And now that's a hurt person. And what do hurt people do? They hurt people. And so another person gets hurt and it just keeps going. It's contagious and it goes and it goes and it goes. And we have to ask, how does that ever stop? And Jesus says, this is how it stops. When you are hurt, you become the end game of that. You're the stopping point. That instead of hurting another or hurting them back, you love them. Love is sacrificial. This is the heart of forgiveness, is that, that forgiveness means some wrong, some injustice has been done. And instead of justly giving it back, I'll take the pain on myself. It will terminate here. Is that not what Jesus did on the cross? You deserve wrath, but I'll love you and I'll take it on myself. I'll take the pain on myself. Verse 31 makes it so practical. He says, just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. For centuries now, that has been referred to as the golden rule. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. This has its roots in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.18, this is where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. We often kind of gloss over that and just like, okay, that's a high calling to love others. You're like, how do you love them? As yourself. And yet now Jesus gives this paradigm for how to love others in the context of him saying, love your enemy. And so you have to now enmesh the two and say, okay, what does it look like for me to love my enemy? Okay, bless them when they curse me. It's pray for them when they mistreat me. All these things, give generously without prejudice. Okay, but then you say, oh, actually, I want you to love them, your enemy, like you love yourself. Do to others what you want them to do to you. Who are the others? My neighbor, more my enemy. How I want to be treated is how I should treat my enemy. That's such a hard calling. But it's so practical. It's such an applicable paradigm to live by. He keeps going, verse 32. It says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? 
Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you can expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. I'm saying, it's not unusual to love those who love you. That's pretty normal. It's not unusual to do good to those who do good to you. That's pretty normal. It is not unusual to offer a loan to someone that is sure and safe and it's going to ultimately benefit you and somehow. That's normal. Jesus has called us to something different. He continues in verse 35, he says, but, so now in contrast to what he has just said, love your enemies, do what is good, and lend expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the most high for he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful just as your father also is merciful. That is unusual love. And do you hear how he says, there's a reward in this. Like, it may seem on the surface like doing these things, not retaliating and extending grace and forgiveness and being generous to those who hurt you. Like, that's just nonsensical, Jesus. This is crazy. You've called me to that. And he's like, it sounds crazy, but it's actually the way of life. It's the way of blessing. There is actually a reward in that. So he's not saying you just like don't care about yourself. Remember, it's love your neighbor as yourself. You are supposed to love yourself. There's a healthy level of that that we should all embrace. We should love ourselves, but we love others, including our enemy, as we love ourselves. And I always say, in that loving yourself, there is this idea of prudence that you should desire good things. You should desire health and prosperity. You should desire things in a right context. And he's saying, here's the reward. But do you see where the reward is? It's not in that horizontal relationship that's hurting you so much. The reward is in that vertical relationship with your Father in heaven. Your reward comes from God himself. The reward is tied clearly in this to our relationship with God as our Father. And this reward doesn't merit us salvation. It's this continued further blessing and grace that is found in following God in obedience. It's his pleasure and delight in how we reflect his character. Because remember, why were we created? Isaiah 43, 7 those whom I created for my glory. Genesis 2, 3, what, what was the whole thing we were made to do? Be the image of God, made in his image to project to the world, this is who God is. And now in his likeness, we're gonna be creative, we're gonna cultivate, we're gonna take dominion, we're gonna subdue the earth, we're gonna multiply, we're gonna do all these beautiful things that are an image of God, and yet we marred that. And Jesus is saying, no, you can come back to that. That's the whole point of the gospel is to be restored back into this relationship with God where now you can image him rightly. And this is what it looks like. Put a stop to all of this. This is the gospel that we are broken, hurt people. And we engage in broken activity and we hurt other people and all of the madness of the curse of our fall that we have to own that. We are wretched sinners we are broken and we cannot fix ourselves, we cannot save ourselves, and yet God in love and grace, meaning we don't deserve his favor, but he gives it freely, he comes to us and he provides salvation, having taken the cost on himself, like he is saying now, you don't retaliate, you take it and you love in exchange that he went to the cross and took our sin, he bore it on himself, all of our sin and shame placed on him and he absorbed the very wrath of God 
that all of our just consequence was poured out on him on the cross. He took our place. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. That he took our place and said, I give you my righteousness so that you are now in a right standing relationship with God. And that was at his cost. So we can engage in this. Because bottom line, it comes down to this. Our love should be unusual, extraordinary love. If your love is usual, that's not really love. I'm calling you to something so much more. I'm calling you to this unusual love, this extraordinary, meaning extraordinary. It goes beyond what is usual, what is common in this world. You should stand out. And you think through these practical examples of what Jesus said, Oh, how much does it stand out when you turn the cheek as someone strikes you and make yourself vulnerable again and you give generously without prejudice and you, you bless those who curse you, you pray for those who mistreat you? How different will we look when we obey this teaching? This is remarkable, but it can be so difficult to live this out. This kind of love, a love like God's love, is so hard, it seems unattainable. And Jesus knew that we are gonna have to rely on the power of God to be able to do this. We have to keep our eyes fixed on him in order to do this. So watch what he says next in verse 37. He says, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Wait a second. Wait, where did that come from? <laughs> so it's just thrown in here, like we just love random things. No, he's saying, look, the only way you're gonna do this is if you keep your eyes on God. Stop looking around and judgment, you're never gonna be able to do this if you're looking around horizontally. Keep your eyes fixed on things that are above. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. So th these are some of the, the more famous things that Jesus said. Um, people love in our culture to say, uh, you can't judge me, things like that. And, and in a sense, yeah, if I'm gonna obey my king, then I should not be judging you. But there's, there's, a, there's a, a miscalculation that has taken place. Jesus is not prohibiting us from ethical evaluation. You cannot obey all the teachings of Jesus by just having blinders on to like never make any kind of a call on whether someone is doing something right or wrong. That is not what he's saying to do. Just be ignorant to everything going on around you. He's saying you don't judge someone and that you condemn them in a final sense. He's saying you don't relate to someone in a way that just kind of casts them out and does not actually push them toward God. Only God has that right for ultimate judgment. But we should ethically evaluate things. This is, this is a perspective that condemns and holds others down rather than pushing them to God that Jesus is saying we should not engage in. And he's, he's making this correlation between how we treat others and how God treats us. And you know, we have to put that in the context of the rest of Jesus' teachings. That this is not saying, this is, this is your salvation. If you forgive others, then you'll be forgiven and you'll merit salvation. What he's saying is, when you realize that you have been forgiven, that you have an extended grace, and you encounter that salvation, you encounter God himself who has come to save, then this changes you. And now you are empowered to do the same for others. And so we must do that. If we cannot do that, then you absolutely should question, have I actually encountered that for myself? So he goes on, verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. 
You know, God is generous to the generous. That is actually a beautiful principle that is very biblical. It may not look like you want it to. Like we, we will not say like, if you give X dollars, then God will bless you with Y dollars. No. But absolutely, God is generous to the generous. He knows, he's beautifully generous. This is this image, this illustration that goes back kind of like lost on our culture. Like pressed down, shaken, all this stuff. Like what is this? Like a cocktail mixer? Like what is going on here? And, and this is a reference to first century Palestine, very agrarian culture. So um, they, they would take grain and they would actually have this funnel type cup thing. And so this, this is basically the steps that were taken by someone who is actually like walking in integrity. When they're measuring out the, the portion for someone who's made payment. They would bring it, they'd shake it so that there's no loose grain in there, like there's no air pockets or anything. Like make sure it's packed in there. You're really getting exactly what you think you're getting and it's even running over. Here you go. And Jesus, this is what is offered to you. 39. He also told them a parable. Can the blind guide the blind? Won't they both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. This is related to the call for unusual love and prohibiting judgment. That is God's role. But only in following God are we going to be able to avoid the disaster of falling into a pit because the blind cannot lead the blind. Both end up in catastrophe. And so he's again saying there, stop looking around horizontally. You've got to keep your eyes vertically or you're never going to be able to do this. Who should we follow? Jesus. He is not going to lead us into a pit. In fact, I love how much illusion is found here. Like, how often do the psalmists talk about being in a pit? You know, David is actually sitting in a palace at points when he writes some of the psalms where he says, I'm in this pit. (laughs) You've taken me out of this pit. You're like, you're in like the most plush place in the kingdom. No, God will not lead us into a pit. He takes us out of the pit. So follow him. Keep our eyes fixed on him. And if you're not yet convinced of Jesus' argument, he continues in verse 41. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the splinter that is in your eye, when you yourself don't see the beam of wood in your eye? Hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter in your brother's eye. We must view ourselves and others the way that God does. So consider Jesus' point. Like, whoa, whoa. Man, whoa. This is crazy. Hold still. You got this little splinter in your eyeball. That's got to be awful. That's got to be so painful. Hold still. Stop moving. I'm going to get it out. It's crazy. You Like, I'm going to show you this thing. When I get it out, this is wild. And all the while, she's like, hey, you got this, like, beam of wood sticking out of your eyeball. You think it's a good idea to go take that splinter out? Like, no, first... Realize there's a beam of wood sticking out of your eye. Take it out. And this is not saying that there's never a time for you to step in to help someone address their problems. He's saying first, you've got to see yourself. See your own mess. See the the beam of wood that's in your own eye. And then when you get rid of that, when you address that, when you've got that managed, now you can actually lovingly help your brother. We should step in to each other's struggles. We should rebuke each other, encourage each other, admonish one another, all these different things that require me to actually look into your life and you to look into my life and say, there's a splinter in your eye. Let me help you take it out. 
But we have no right to do that when we cannot first see there's a plank of wood like, crammed into my eye socket. I've got to get that out first before I can help you with your splinter. And we have to see ourselves rightly. We must see others, enemies included, with great compassion and mercy. That's the way that God sees us. You know, Jesus being crucified, one of his final things that he said, and just every one of them is so profound, but one of the ones that just really struck me as I've wrestled through this text this week is that over and over I hear Jesus nailed to a cross as people are walking by. There's this mockery of a sign, king of the Jews placed over his head. The soldiers have beat him beyond recognition. He's thirsting to death. He's suffocating because that's ultimately how you typically die from crucifixion. And so as he's there and all these people are coming by and mocking him, making fun of him. He saved others, can't save himself. All of this stuff is happening and Jesus looks out and he says, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. What did Jesus mean? As he's being murdered, the creator of the cosmos is being murdered by his own creation and he looks out and prays to God the Father and says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. What did Jesus mean by that? They don't know what they're doing. Pretty sure that guy knew what he was doing when he took that hammer and drove a nail through Jesus' hand. Pretty sure this guy knows what he's doing when he comes over. Like all the just insane, horrific things that are happening at the crucifixion. He's like, how do they not know what they're doing? What do you mean, Jesus? And so two things here. One, before we launch further into this, no, like, He's saying there's so much more at play here than what seems to be obvious on the surface. So he can have compassion. He can see beyond what is the surface level of front on his body. He can see that there's more. And before we unpack that further, the other thing is we cannot excuse what they're doing either. It does not mean because they don't understand what they're doing that it's okay. In fact, Jesus is nailed to a cross for this very thing because there is real offense and sin against God. And the only way to atone for that is God himself to take our place so it can be bought, brought back, bought and brought back into a right standing relationship with him. So Jesus is dying because this is truly wrong. And yet, we can engage in the same way as Jesus and see there's so much more at play here. And so have some mercy, have compassion. They don't know what they're doing. They don't even realize it. Dr. Stringer is a pastor and counselor. Um, he, he talks about this in a book where he, he talks about how bad decisions are often not really in pursuit of the pleasure that it looks like. Bad decisions, engagement, and harmful behavior and things is not really just about this malicious thing. Sometimes it is, but often it's not. Often what is really behind this is that we're condemning ourselves that what we're actually doing is attempting to add evidence to our own self-judgment. That it's easy to think like, okay, I need to extend the blessing in response to the curse and all these other things. Like, don't judge, okay, as I'm looking out, like I'm not going to evaluate you wrongly in this way that is reserved only for God. Like, I'm just, okay, be gracious to everyone. And then you have to turn it back and say, well, what about yourself? And the way that you view your own sin struggles the way that you view the reason behind your own behavior and the behavior of others around you, can you stop and see that there may be something so much more? But does it excuse it? 
No. But can it reframe the way that you see it and the way that you engage with them? Yes. Let me give you an example that is just crazy to me. Um, how even, even the results of this, the, the, the loss of maliciousness or, or these pointed reasons, um, you can see so many other things behind it. In 2017, the NBA Finals, Google Analytics became a, a, a huge thing. And, and so um, a lot of people have looked back to this. In the 2017 NBA Finals, you have two cities, final games, game five. Here it is, deciding game. And in one city, the city where the game is actually being hosted, the traffic to pornography sites plummeted 21% below average when it was clear that they were winning. The use of porn, a behavior that you do not want, that is not good, plummets. As it appears the game is going well, we're going to win, it plummets 21% below average. And then over time afterward, return back to its normal level. What is there to that? They think they're winning and this negative behavior goes away. And then you see in the rival city where they're losing and watching this play out, porn increased, increased 34% from negative six during the game as they're losing to 28%. What is going on that you can watch two cities both in the final games? Like, even if your team doesn't make it, like, you made it this far, and like, they're engaged, and yet when one city is convinced it's going well, they have less negative behavior. And the city where it's not going well, their negative behavior rises. What is behind that? Can you attribute that to just addiction? Can you attribute that just to malicious desire, wrongful desire? No, there's gotta be something more there. And so you look at that and say, like, it's futility. The seeming futility, the sense of meaninglessness, that as I watch something that I identify with do well, then I'm kind of brought into that and like, yes, something good and upright. And so I can walk away from something wrong. And then as something that I identify with and and all that goes poorly, then I'll just reindulge something that helps me to escape the meaninglessness of something that I put so much into. And that's like big, high-level stuff. But now apply that to your life and your sin struggle, whatever it is. Are you not far more prone to indulge that when you feel like things are out of your control, when they're meaningless, when you're hurting all those things? In those negative places, we find ourselves drawn back into that and you hear Jesus on a cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And does it make it okay that you did that? No. What makes it okay that you did that is that God has paid for your debt. And in compassion, he says, there's something so much more here. And now as you view others, can you see each other with compassion? Can you see your enemy with compassion and extend mercy because you have been extended mercy? Can you in fact see that to such a degree that you would offer love in return? That you would not take vengeance into your own hands, but you would make yourself vulnerable and show them practically with your actions, your responses, that you know there's a better way. There's a God who loves, and you know him personally, and that's how you can do this. So how do you serve? This has been my wrestle for months now. How do you serve from a heart of flesh? When as you're hurt, you know what our tendency is to put up defenses, put up walls that heart starts to harden. 
You feel it's colder and colder, and that's nice because the attacks don't hurt as much anymore. And the, the more you do that, the more you realize you don't feel anything. And so how can we serve from a heart of flesh, not serve out of our wounding? The way that we do this is preach the gospel to others, but also preach it to ourselves. How do you love your enemy? You have to constantly behold the gospel, the good news that there's a God who in grace and love loves you and extends that grace when you were his enemy. And so I preach the gospel to you. I preach the gospel to myself. We must preach the gospel to each other to constantly keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And that empowers us, that enables us to now extend this kind of extravagant, extraordinary, not normal love to everyone. That kind of love we're to be known for. Paul said it like this to Timothy um, towards the close of his first epistle, his first letter to Timothy. He says, pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That the way that you relate to others and yourself really comes back to remember the teachings, but now, do you remember how that actually applies to your life? This gospel you preach, do you know that that gospel is for you too? Hold to that gospel. So we, church, I'll conclude with this. We have got to have a gospel culture where we preach the gospel, but we believe the gospel and we live according to the gospel. And that means we need to slow down. Can you slow down? Can we create environments on Sunday mornings and in your home and in coffee shops and on walks on the trail and all over the place, make more and more environments where people know, hey, it's safe here. It's safe to express my doubts, my questions, my hurts, my struggles. And what I'm going to encounter is good news, the gospel. We must have that. We must understand others, but first you have to understand yourself. And so slow down to take the time to actually ask, what's behind this in me? What's driving me in this? Why can I not obey this teaching to turn the cheek? and bless those who curse me, and give generously without prejudice, and pray for those who mistreat me. Why can I not do those things? You first need to look inside. What is the wound that's keeping you from being able to do this? And you preach the gospel to that, and you find healing, that Jesus heals. Find the healing there that is necessary. And then suddenly, you open my eyes, and look out, and you can hurt me over and over and over. And instead of just like solidifying my heart, putting up these walls. I can feel that, but I can retaliate, not for vengeance, I can actually retaliate for the, the weapon, with the weapons of the kingdom, and that's just to love you. Say, so I'll turn, you can hit again. Ask for something, I'll give. I won't expect anything back. This is what should mark us, beloved, because you are loved. So three questions will you see and believe that God actually loves you? Like, actually consider that. Will you see the cross? Proof of God's love revealed among us. And will you believe God loves you? You are truly loved. And I want to ask, will you love this church? I genuinely love this church. Love in this extraordinary way. It's not normal kind of love. Will you look around and commit, I'm going to love this church that way?
And then lastly, will you love your enemy? Hear the words of Jesus and obey your king. Let's go love our enemy. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Uh, You do not call us to things that you have not even done yourself. You've sent your son, Jesus. You learned (laughs) through obedience. You've become a faithful high priest who can sympathize with us and all. You know what it is like to be reviled, to be insulted, to be persecuted. You know what suffering is to an exponentially greater degree than we could ever even imagine. You took the sin of the world on yourself. So God, let us see that it is actually to our glory to enter into sufferings for your sake. So let us see that every moment of suffering, no matter what it is, can actually be turned into something that would give glory to you. Let us be obedient, but we need you. So help us to keep our eyes on you, to preach the gospel faithfully to all the nations, but God, to also preach the gospel into the mirror, to preach it into our own hearts. But help us to love others, to love our enemies, to love ourselves even, and to see others with compassion and mercy like you have. You are worthy of everything. We could sing all day long. It wouldn't be enough. We We could do nothing that would earn our way back to you. You come in grace. So we praise you for that. You're glorious. God, would you bless everyone here? There are so many hurts relational conflicts, divisions. To that, would you bring healing, Spirit? Would you magnify your name, your joy over our sorrow? For so many, we just desperately need you. Show up. We invite you.